I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Today, I'm joined by Sheldon Gilbert of the National Constitution Center. Welcome back. Thanks. Glad to be back. Yeah. So uh, the last time you were on uh, this podcast, you were at IJ. Uh, so how are you settling in to your new digs at NCC? Oh, you know, the National Constitution Center is just right across from Independence Hall. So you can practically feel the, the original <laughs> public meaning of the Constitution emanating from, uh, from across the way. It's fantastic. That's great. Well, in this episode, we'll talk about Justice Kavanaugh's first week on the bench. And also, I recently spoke with Judge Lisa Branch of the 11th Circuit, so we'll run that interview. So the court is out this week, so some of the justices are out of town giving speeches. Chief Justice Roberts made headlines earlier this week for addressing the uh, recent unpleasantness in Washington. Speaking to students at the University of Minnesota Law School, here's what he had to say. He said, I'm not going to criticize the political branches, but he emphasized how the judicial branch is, and it must be, very different. Unlike public officials, uh, members of the judiciary do not speak for the people. We speak for the Constitution. He also talked about the importance of collegiality on his court, and he described a, a shared commitment to a genuine exchange of ideas and views through each step of the decision process. We need to know at each step that we are all in this together, which I thought was a nice thing. And he also quoted his newest colleague, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, when he said, we don't sit on opposite sides of the aisle. We don't caucus in separate rooms. We don't serve one party or one interest. We serve one nation. And he, he wrapped up his speech by saying, I want to assure all of you that we will continue to do the best uh, to do that to the best of our abilities, whether times are calm or contentious. So I think it was reassuring to hear Chief Justice Roberts uh, address, you know, uh, everything that's been happening. And, you know, there are all of these uh, interesting things being said about the Supreme Court and its uh, legitimacy these days. So, you know, I, I appreciated his remarks. Sheldon, did you uh, take a look at those? Yeah, no, I thought it was uh, really interesting and fantastic. Uh, eye-opening remarks from Chief Justice Roberts, um, and uh, you know there are a few different things that um, stand out in my mind. You, you mentioned uh, some of them: um, his uh, his commitment to judicial independence. Uh, I thought was a very important uh, message to hear, and he said something interesting. He said, "You know, sometimes the court has succumbed to political pressure." Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's been the wrong choice, right? And that line in his speech generated all sorts of speculation about exactly, you know, what cases he had in mind. Is he talking about <laughs> recent memory? Uh, yeah. You know, there are uh, folks on the right who said, wait, is he talking about his his own vote in the uh, Obamacare cases uh, in NFIB versus Sebelius, where, you know, he reportedly, uh, you know, changed his vote uh, from uh, – uh, upholding uh, from uh, voting to hold the the act as unconstitutional to holding that it's constitutional under the tax powers is is that maybe what he's talking about? Um, others uh, on the left kind of uh, invoked Bush v. Gore, and is he talking about uh, that moment? And so that line ended up being kind of a Rorschach test that pretty much anybody could kind of read into it uh, <laughs> their own, you know, uh, thoughts and perspectives about, you know, at what point in time might the court have succumbed to political pressures. Um, but uh, regardless, I, I thought it was an incredibly important reminder that the, the court's credibility in no small part comes from the perception that it is 
you know, above politics and above the fray. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Well, anyway, last week was Justice Kavanaugh's first full week on the bench, uh, and he hit the ground running with five oral arguments at the court. So during the first oral argument, I I was out of town, so I wasn't able to go over to the court uh, for for that day. But in some of the news reports, I read that at one point he referred to, uh, you know, the the court has held or something along those lines rather than the other justices will refer to their own decisions. You know, they'll say, as we have held. Uh, so it might take him a little bit of time to to get, get used to being, you know, one of the Supremes instead of a, an appeals court judge. Uh, I also read that Justice Kennedy was in the courtroom for that first argument. He was in the reserved seats uh, for the guests guests of the justices, along with Justice Kavanaugh's wife and his daughters. And then Justice Kavanaugh's parents were also in the courtroom. Um, And, you know, as happens whenever there is a new member of the court, uh, the seating arrangement of the justices has has shifted a bit. Uh, so Kavanaugh is on, I think, the far right side of the court if you're if you're facing the bench, and he's seated next to Kagan, which I thought was kind of nice. They'll you know they'll be um, bench uh, bench buddies because they you know they've known each other for a long time and you know worked at uh, at Harvard together. So I thought that was kind of nice. Yeah, uh, in uh, Justice Kagan is as at Harvard was basically his boss, right? Yeah, she, uh, she hired, she hired him, yeah. him to, to to teach at Harvard, and that's a fun, you know, long term relationship. Yeah. So, um, anyway, there uh, there was a week of arguments before Kavanaugh was confirmed, though, and some of them seemed like. They might be pretty close cases after having, uh, you know, listened to the oral arguments. The the Dusky Gopher Frog case, I think, uh, possibly the non delegation case with the involving the Sex Offender Registration Act, uh, and and also the case seeking to overturn the Williamson County decision from the 1980s that requires property owners to uh, to go to state court before they can bring a um, a federal a federal suit alleging a government taking of property. So uh, you know, I, I'm wondering what will happen. Is the court going to you know, potentially reschedule any of these close cases for re-argument, or are we going to see, you know, narrow rulings where there's a majority of votes and, you know, maybe nobody's exactly pleased with them? What What are your predictions? Well, um, before talking about the specific cases, I think thinking about the menu of options that are in front of the court, um, it's certainly the case that the, the usual rule is that if a justice didn't participate in oral argument, then the justice won't vote in the case. But that seems to be a norm rather than a a hard and fixed rule. There have been uh, examples where justices have um, not participated in an oral argument, but nonetheless have have voted in the case. Uh, So one that jumps to mind, uh, famously, Chief Justice Rehnquist had tracheotomy surgery, couldn't attend oral argument, and basically said, you know, I'm going to work from home. Um, would review the transcripts and would vote on the cases and participate in cases. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's certainly possible that uh, a Justice Kavanaugh, even if he didn't participate in oral argument, could um, I think you know conceivably vote in the cases. But I think that's un- unlikely. Um, yeah. The 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 more likely paths, as you suggested, are are you know first if a, if a case um, could split four four. The court might uh, order it re-argued, and that's, you know, uh, uh, for example, uh, when uh, Justice Alito first joined the court, um, I think there were three cases that, you know, could have been 4-4, so the court had them re-argued, and then uh, Justice Alito could participate in them. And then, of course, the other option is what happened with Gorsuch. Gorsuch joined the court in April, I think, Mm -hmm. um, 
and he just uh, recused himself from any cases that were argued before he, he joined, um, which I think it'll probably be a, be a mix of, of both of those. You'll have a number of these that Justice uh, uh, Kavanaugh will recuse himself from. Uh, but I think you're right that, you know, there might be, you know, one or two or maybe three that uh, might be 4-4 and might be candidates for for re-argument. Um, you mentioned the, the, the Dusky case, the uh, the Gundy uh, non-delegation case, um, and uh, I think you had one other. The uh, the one about oh, the, the gravestones, uh, the, the Williamson the County case. Uh, takings clause case. Yeah. Um, if I had to rank those in, in, in terms of which ones I think are most likely the 4-4 four, four, um, and could be re-argued, I think I would put the Dusky Gopher Frog case is the best candidate. Mm-hmm. And then next, maybe Nick, I think there is, there actually is a path forward where um, that case could be resolved in a way that avoids the, you know, kind of the, the core Williamson County issue. Um, but it could be decided uh, or it could be, you know, dismissed as improvident or granted even digged based on what happened in oral argument. Um, and then Gandhi, you know, I, I have to say, I, as, as somebody who, you know, was very interested in the case, very interested in the non-delegation doctrine. I came away from that oral argument thinking that there, are, uh, even though there were clearly four votes, votes to grant cert, I came away thinking I can't find, you know, even four votes um, in favor of Gundy. Uh, so uh, that's the one that I think I would put on the bottom of the list, but still possible as a as a four four. I guess. We'll, we'll know soon enough uh, in the months to come. We'll find out what will happen. Um, well, anyway, I recently spoke with Judge Lisa Branch. Lisa Branch is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Branch. Thank you, Elizabeth. Glad to be here. First off, I understand that you've known my boss, John Malcolm, for many years. SCOTUS 101 listeners know him as the fact checker. Uh, do you have any funny stories you can share about him? I do, as a matter of fact, and he knows I'm going to tell a story. He doesn't know what story I'm going to tell. Um, I've known John uh, for a very long time. We were part of sort of the Atlanta group that moved up uh, to the Bush administration. So we really got to know each other then and got to know his wife, uh, Mary Lee, um, who was wonderful as well. The, the one funny story about John, and this, this actually hurts me when I tell this story too, um, and the, conf- the upfront confession I will make is that when I eat steak, I eat it well done. And I know that causes consternation uh, for a lot of people. But I was sitting next to John and Mary Lee at a steakhouse one night when we were in the Bush administration. And he did something I've never seen anybody do before. He ordered his steak blue, which I had no idea what that meant. And I know medium rare and I've seen rare, but apparently blue is when it's still cold in the center. And as somebody who only eats well done meat, this was about the most horrifying thing I had ever seen. So the lesson learned is that if we go to a steakhouse, I can't sit anywhere near John Malcolm. <laughs> That's great. I'm going to have to tease him about his, his blue steaks. Uh, so let's talk about your career before you became a judge. After working in private practice in Atlanta for a number of years, as you mentioned, you came up to D.C. in 2004 and worked as an associate general counsel at the Department of Homeland Security. That seems like a pretty big move. Um, how did that come about? Uh, I there was as I had mentioned earlier there was a wave of Atlanta lawyers who were moving from Atlanta to DC to join the Bush administration and I wasn't planning on doing that 
uh, a friend of mine from law school was getting ready to move up with her husband. Um, and we had dinner the night before she left. And she spent the whole dinner advocating for me to, to put in an application to, to join the Bush administration. And I agreed at the end of the dinner. And that was September 10th of 2001. And so the world obviously dramatically changed the next day the, with, the, with the horrors of September 11th. And I waited about six or seven days, and then I put my application in. And about two years later, because everybody kind of froze in place, all the political appointees, about two years later, I got the call, and it was um, to join the Department of Homeland Security. So the, the department was pretty new when you arrived in Washington. Tell me what it was like at, working at a, a newly formed department and particularly being there in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, I actually joined uh, the Department of Homeland Security the day before the one-year anniversary of the department's opening its doors. And that is a for a massive department to join when it's only a year old. You are really joining in its infancy. I was the first person to hold my job as the Associate General Counsel for Rules and Legislation. And that really provides a, a unique opportunity to shape the job. You are the first person, and so you are putting procedures and policies in place. And it was a lot of learning, um, a lot of relying on my staff and, and the folks who really knew what they were doing and helped me to get up and running very, very quickly because the Department of Homeland Security at that moment in time was the number one regulatory agency in the federal government, surpassing even EPA. So we had a very, very big job ahead of us, and I had wonderful people helping me to get that up and running. So then you moved to the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs at OMB, which is where you can sort of see the regulatory sausage being made, so to speak. Tell me about that experience. I think OMB provides anybody who works there with one of the more fascinating um, looks at the federal government because at OMB, no matter what job you hold, you are touching all of the federal cabinet agencies. The budget folks are doing that for the budget side and for the regulatory piece. Um, all of the federal cabinet agencies had to, all of their regulations had to come through the office where I worked, OIRA, um, and uh, get approval for their regulations before they would be published in the Federal Register. So we had this, ver this very significant opportunity to see how the entirety of the federal government works. Uh, and it was, it was just one of the best jobs I've ever had. So then you went back to Atlanta, and a few years later, uh, Governor Deal appointed you to the Georgia Court of Appeals, where you served for six years. Tell me about that court and your time as a state court judge. I was not really looking to join uh, a state court as a judge, uh, but I had some friends who approached me and said, I, you know, there are some vacancies coming up. We think you should put in uh, for the appointment, uh, and I did. My hesitation in joining the state court was it is an elected office. And after, after an appointment, it, you have to sit for a statewide election. But it is a nonpartisan office, and I was persuaded by friends to put in to do that. And it really turned into uh, a job that I really, up until recently, thought I would just be the happiest person on the planet if I could have been in that role for the rest of my professional career. Um, the people that I worked with, the other judges, uh, my staff, 
were really just completely top-notch professionals and just really enjoyable people to work with because we had a lot of work ahead of us and you have to spend a lot of hours with them and um, just really brilliant people. And I, I can't say enough good things about the Court of Appeals of Georgia. Yeah, including Chief Judge Dillard, who uh, has previously appeared on, on SCOTUS 101. So now you've moved to the federal bench. You're on the 11th Circuit. Tell me about the transition from state court to federal court. And I'm still in the middle of that transition. Uh, I'm a new judge on the 11th Circuit, about six months in. And so I've, I've learned a lot, but I still have a lot to learn. Uh, while at the end of the day, uh, a court of appeals, the, the job is the same, but every court has different procedures and policies, and so I'm still navigating my way through that. There's certainly a transition from state law to federal law, and so I have a, uh, I'm learning uh, again. It's been a while since I had um, really delved deeply into federal law, and this is just a, a wonderful opportunity to do that. Um, and I truly couldn't be happier to be here at the 11th Circuit, and I thank all of my colleagues for so warmly welcoming me and, and really helping me to get up and running. So you're one of three new judges on the 11th Circuit, uh, all appointed by President Trump. Are, are you bonding with the other Trump judges? Well, I, I certainly remain humbled that President Trump chose me for the um, nomination and then appointment, and I'm certainly grateful that I was confirmed. But once you become a judge, you're really no longer that president's judge. We are a separate branch of government. Um, but you are specifically referring to my colleagues, Britt Grant and Kevin Newsom, who were also appointed by President Trump. Um, Britt Grant and I have known each other for years. Um, and so we have been close friends, and so um, I've known her for a while. I've gotten to know Judge Newsom, um, and really all of my colleagues on the 11th Circuit in, in all of the states have been so welcoming, and it really feels like I've been here for much longer than I have because it's been such a warm welcome. That's really great. So do you have anything in your chambers to showcase your, your personality or your roots? I've heard about Judge Newsom's ping pong table. Oh, I think the first thing that you see when you walk into my chambers, there's an Atlanta artist, Steve Penley, and I have his Statue of Liberty print, um, and that's the first thing. But as far as the rest of my office goes, there are an awful lot of wall hangings that are just, when you've, when you've been in government service, you collect a lot of things that go on walls. And, and so certainly my Bush administration days are well represented. Um, my Court of Appeals of Georgia days are well represented, um, and I don't have any anything yet from the 11th Circuit, but I'm sure I will soon. So I'm sure over the years you've had a number of law clerks. Have you de developed any traditions with your law clerks, special outings or anything like that? I, I really think I have to, on this one, uh, defer to my judicial assistant, Linda King. She is a fantastic baker. And she, she, she was with me at the Court of Appeals of Georgia, and I truly think that when, when she and I moved over to the 11th Circuit, most of the, my former colleagues were really sad to see her go, and I was sort of inconsequential to that. But what she has helped my chambers establish as a tradition is that um, she bakes cakes for any special occasion, and every law clerk, when they have their birthday, they get to choose which cake they want. And when she bakes a cake, the entire courthouse comes by our chambers and goes, where is that, where's Linda's cake today? So uh, I think Linda King has really helped to make that a, a special time for my clerks. 
Is there a particular cake that's her real specialty? Absolutely, it's her apple dapple cake. Apple dapple, oh, that sounds really tasty. So a lot of SCOTUS 101 listeners are law students and, and young lawyers just starting out. Is there any advice or something you wish you would have known when you were first starting out as a lawyer? Well, certainly the advice that I give everybody is that first and foremost, you have to work hard and you have to develop expertise and you have to be very precise in, in all the work products that you uh, produce. But the, the one piece of advice uh, that I wish I had been given um, is that it's very, your relationships with your classmates and with others in the profession that you develop as you proceed along are extraordinarily important. So join things. Find an or a legal organization uh, that, that interests you and, and make connections there because those connections are going to be so extraordinarily helpful to you as you progress in your career. And help comes from places that you wouldn't expect. That friendship that you develop in, in one place is going to help you later in your career. So treasure those connections. That's great advice. So if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? I'm going to go with living. Um, and I'm going to go with Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, I had occasion to briefly meet him uh, at an 11th Circuit Judicial Conference. All the Supreme Court justices are assigned to a circuit that they're in charge of, and he is in charge of the 11th Circuit. Um, so he came to our conference, and I sat next to him at lunch one day um, at a large table. Um, and, and during that uh, lunch, I, I realized there were so many things that I wanted to talk with him about. He is from Georgia, and that gives us a sort of a shared connection to our state. Um, I'm an, a Georgian born and raised, and, and his experience in Savannah on the coast and when he grew up, grew up is so completely different from mine when I grew up in Atlanta, but I would love to, to talk with him about sort of our shared state heritage. Um, and, and one of the things that I also noticed about him uh, at the luncheon um, is his connection to his wife, Jenny, and his general uh, just love of life. Mm -hmm. And I think all of those would, uh, would make for wonderful, uh, make him a wonderful companion at a lunch. Definitely. Well, Judge Branch, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, and thank you for having me, Elizabeth. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, where I'm going to try to stump Sheldon. Are you ready? I, I, I told you, Elizabeth, I am happy to get questions wrong anytime you want me to uh, <laughs> come in and be embarrassed by your fascinating and very hard trivia questions. Oh, I don't think these are that hard. Okay, first question. <laughs> Which state has produced the most Supreme Court justices? Ooh, which state has produced the most Supreme Court justices? Um, my, uh, my initial guess would be Virginia. No, although that's pretty close. It's New York. New York that was going to be my second guess. Yeah, it had 15, to be Virginia or New York. Fifteen justices. Now, you're, yeah. fr you're from— what, What's Virginia? Um, I, don't, I don't have that. I think it's nine or maybe 11. Um, yeah. It's, you know, not that, not that far behind. You're, you're from Utah, right? I am. Do you know how many hail from your home state? <laughs> well, technically, my um, I was born in Utah, but raised in the great state of Idaho. Okay, uh, well, and I think there are, there are probably fewer justices from from Idaho. There are zero from Idaho. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, just one from Utah. But there is one from Utah. Yeah, George Sutherland. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next question: Which U.S. president argued the most times before the Supreme Court? 
which U.S. president argued the most times before the Supreme Court? Hmm. I'll give you a hint. He he was the Solicitor General of the United States. Sorry, what was that? He was the Solicitor General of the United States before he was president, if that helps. Yeah, it does help, and I, I and but it's not helping me. But there's a theoretical person <laughs> that it would help. <laughs> it was uh, uh, Chief Justice Taft, President oh, Taft. Course. He argued yes. 18 cases, and he won 16 of those. This was during his time as Solicitor General under President uh, Benjamin Harrison. Now, yes. this this puts him a ways behind. Uh, fellow justices who have argued uh, before before the high court, Thurgood Marshall argued 32 cases, and John Roberts, I think, has argued the most of any justice, and that's 39 cases. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see the justices who left the court and then argued cases after they left. Yeah, there's a there's a whole another category of, of those. <laughs> I don't have all those numbers tallied, but I'll have to look into that. See, that, that's fodder for another Supreme Trivia round that you can spring on somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure we're going to see uh, David Souter or uh, John Paul Stevens or O'Connor coming back to— uh... Yeah, it's just not the not the way we roll anymore. Uh, court, the justices don't tend to go back into practice, but that's uh, not the case historically. There are a host of justices who left the bench uh, and went back into practice. Yeah, it was it was funny to see the the sketches from the oral argument when Justice Kennedy was there. And, you know, he's in the courtroom, but he's, you know, not wearing the robes. He's just wearing a suit and he's sitting there, you know, as a spectator. It was uh, interesting to see that. OK, well, third- you know, can I oh, go ahead. say that um, I I was in the court for the last Justice Kennedy's last day mm-hmm. at the court when they were announcing argument or they were announcing opinions. And everybody kind of speculated, is he going to, you know, announce his resignation? Of course, as we know, during during the court session, he did not announce his, his resignation, or rather Chief Justice Roberts didn't announce. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, Chief Justice Roberts did kind of this little joke where he's like, I have some uh, some announcements to make of people who are, you know, leaving the court. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, staffers who have long time worked at the court. Yeah. And, um, and everybody kind of chuckled. Uh, but uh, Justice Kennedy had a number of family members in the audience, as I recall, um, and so there's a lot of speculation. Mm-hmm. And um, as Chief Justice Roberts was talking about one of his staffers who was leaving the court, I looked over, and, and Justice Gorsuch looked like he was getting a little teary-eyed. He was smiling and, and looked like really kind of emotional. And I thought, <laughs> wow, Justice Gorsuch must have a really good relationship with you know, these staffers who are leaving the court. Um, in retrospect, I kind of wonder if he was, you know, thinking about his uh, longtime mentor and former boss, Justice Kennedy, and knew he was going to be leaving the bench and was kind of getting emotional about it at the time. Um, and it just kind of goes to show, like, the, the, the relationships that a lot of these justices develop with their clerks, mm-hmm. um, which here's, a, here's, here's some trivia for you. Ooh. Um, uh, next year marks the 100th anniversary of the congressional legislation authorizing Supreme Court law clerks. Um, so I, I think we, we need to do some sort of event on the, the centennial of, of Supreme Court law clerks <laughs> and kind of talk about uh, the, the great relationships that uh, the, the justices and their law clerks have. Oh, that's great. Okay, well, speaking of law clerks, my next question is about uh, 
a Supreme Court law clerk. Who was the first Supreme Court clerk to later become a justice? Oh, interesting. The first clerk to later become a justice. Um, and uh, the definition of clerk has changed over time. Um, I'm going to guess uh, Justice Jackson. Um, well, I'll have to see if maybe under a different definition uh, he he <laughs> would have counted. But no, I don't think so. Let's by go. my by my sources, Byron Wizard White was was the first clerk to later become a justice. And yeah, I I love that. Um, uh, by Byron White, uh, so. so his story about how he became a justice is uh, he was assigned the job of finding somebody to fill that seat um, <laughs> when he was in DOJ. And, uh, and then, you know, lo and behold, his, his search committee uh, of, of underlings, uh, you know, purportedly without his knowledge, suggested, you know, kind of did a, a Dick Cheney, you know, and said, <laughs> why don't you suggest the guy that you assigned to find who should fill that seat? Um, <laughs> That's great. But he's, he's, he's one of the most interesting, colorful justices in the in the 20th century. Definitely. And of course, Neil Gorsuch was the first former clerk to serve with his former boss, as as you yeah. were just mentioning. Okay, next question. Now, is, now is Justice um, Kennedy the first justice to have two of his clerks become justices? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to look into that. I think I, I think so. Comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. In which case, you know, Justice Kennedy would have made history twice. Yeah. <laughs> for his clerks. Pretty cool. Okay, next question. Which justice embellished his resume, claiming he served in the Army during World War I and graduated second in his class at Columbia Law School? <laughs> uh, that's great. I, I don't know who it is, but I totally want to know. I am hooked. I want <laughs> well, to hear this story. Um, well, it's everybody's favorite uh, Wild Bill, William oh O. Gosh, Douglas. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, he graduated fifth in his class at Columbia, not second. <laughs> so that seems like, was uh, wow, it, you know, was you it worth could, the fudge? <laughs> yeah. You, you could spend an entire seminar just talking about uh, Wild Bill scandals. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, final question. All right. I think I'm, I'm O and however many at this point. So, uh, You know, I haven't been keeping track, but you've had great anecdotes to go along with all of them, so I'm, I'm giving you credit. <laughs> all right. Okay, final question. Which justice brought jazzercise to the Supreme Court gym? <laughs> well, uh, there's, there's the answer that I, that I think I, I should give, um, and then there's uh, the, the answer that I want to give. I would love the correct answer to be Stephen Breyer because I'm just picturing Stephen Breyer in like a leotard doing jazzercise. No one wants to picture that. And that is awesome. So, um, so I'm going to stick with, 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 uh, with Justice Breyer no matter what the actual answer might be. It was actually Sandra Day O'Connor. She brought uh, an instructor from the, the YMCA to the Supreme Court gym. Yeah, that's great. Well, that, that is, I, I love your Supreme Trivia. I always learn lots of new things every week. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite things. Well, and, you know, I love your, your, uh, your courting history hashtag on, on Twitter. That's always very informative and a much deeper dive into, you know, different uh, 
trivia topics than, than we get into in Supreme Trivia. Uh, but Sheldon, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Keep things uh, going well in D.C. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org. Liberals have pretty much cornered the market on 101-style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week, Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from Heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective? Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.